This episode is supported by Vegamore. I am a month and a half into my Vegamore journey, and I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed thinning hair before. And it's exciting to see those babies come in. I use the shampoo, the conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell, 100% cruelty-free, and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash mind, code mind, to save 20% on your first order. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all, from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to new parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back, everyone, to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat, and I'm thrilled that you were here with us today. I've been looking forward to having this interview with Eleanor Claycorn for some time now. After reading her book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, let me just start by saying that as I was reading through this book, I just felt both inspired and enraged by the history of how medical modern medicine anyways, and Western medicine has treated women and women's medical conditions and mental health conditions. What I think you will pick up in this interview is just how much history there is and how through time we have all learned and how through time it's all just been absorbed into us. We have learned how to think poorly of ourselves and in some ways, learn to expect not being the, getting the treatment that we need from our care providers or even being believed by the people around us. And this is not a modern issue. It's been happening for a long, long time. And throughout this book, we get so much information as to the how and the why and the what. I'm really thrilled for you guys to hear this interview, but even more than that, to go and get this book. I listened to this book as an audiobook. And purchased the hard copy as well so that I could really highlight a lot of the areas in the book that I wanted to be able to come back to. I view this book as a really important reference for us to understand some of the history that connects us to why we feel the way we feel now, why we feel unheard and uh, dismissed. It's been in our medical systems for a long, long time. Eleanor really digs into a lot of this history, but there is so much more in the book. So in this interview today, you will hear some of this history as Eleanor discusses it with us. I do believe that this interview will start to give you some of the insight into this history. Eleanor Cleghorn is a feminist cultural historian, and her critical writing has been published in several academic journals. After receiving her PhD in 2012, Eleanor spent three years as a postdoctoral researcher at the Ruskin School, University of Oxford, working on an interdisciplinary medical humanities project. She is the author of Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, 
And I can't wait for you guys to get to this interview. So let's not wait another second. Let's meet Eleanor. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I am sort of having my own fangirl moment to be able to talk with you today. I have listened to and read through your book, Unwell Women. And as soon as I started listening to it, I knew that how pertinent it would be to the perinatal period and just women's experience in general, and very specifically the arc of what you go through from the beginning of recorded history, essentially on women's health all the way to present. And I believe one of their reviews on your book is, yes, I read it in rage and recognize myself in its pages. And that is is exactly how I felt as well. You've done an incredible amount of work on this book. And it is just in my view, so, so important for, for all women to read. So I just thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for reading for such kind words. I think it's a really important book and I want to get into all of those details. But first, I know that a lot of this book was, I guess you could say, inspired by your own personal experience and the work that you do. So I'd love for you to start from there and kind of let us know what brought you to writing this book. Of course. So Unwell Women began as a germ of an idea in 2010 just after I was diagnosed with the chronic autoimmune disease called lupus. And I was diagnosed after having a really complicated pregnancy with my second son, in which he presented with a condition called congenital heart block when I was about 25 weeks pregnant. Mm. And congenital heart block is quite a rare condition. And it happens when the node, the AV node that controls the way that the fetal heart beats is damaged and then the fetal heart rate slows down. So all the while he was in me, he was safe because he was being regulated by my heart and my blood. So the the important thing was really to get his heart healthy so that when he was born, he wouldn't need to have a pacemaker or surgery. So this was a real shock and I had no idea what might be causing this. My consultants, amazing fetal cardiologists who work at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, explained to me that it might be being caused by something that was happening in my own immune system. They told me that I might be producing a cell that was crossing the placental barrier and attacking my baby's heart. So this was quite a lot to take on, that it was something that my body was doing to my baby, that my body wasn't providing this protective space, that it was actually mounting an attack on my baby. So psychically, this was very difficult to understand and upsetting. But I had blood tests that showed that I did carry this immune abnormality that is associated with women who have lupus. So I didn't at that stage have a diagnosis. Everything was focused on the care of my unborn baby, on making sure that his heart would be, function would be regulated. He was born healthy and well, thanks to steroids that I took, to constant monitoring, to incredible fetal cardiologists. Mm. And thankfully all was well, and the block was negligible when he was born. But when he was about nine weeks old, I got very sick and I developed a heart condition of my own. 
I was hospitalized. The heart condition was very mysterious. And my consultants were baffled as to what was now causing my own heart to fail. It wasn't until a rheumatologist came to see me from another hospital and looked at my notes that anyone considered my pregnancy history in relation to my current state of health. So nobody had thought to put the puzzle pieces together and think that the process that had damaged my baby's heart was perhaps now damaging mine. And this rheumatologist did put those puzzle pieces together and he did make a diagnosis of lupus. So there was an explanation now for what happened to my baby and what was happening to me. So I was immediately put into the care of excellent lupus consultants and experts in the field, given the correct medication. And I was able to begin this kind of slow road to some sort of recovery. But as I was doing this very slow business of recovering, I became really fixated on why all these things had happened, why I'd fallen between these you know, gaps of knowledge, why I wasn't diagnosed more quickly, why my condition hadn't been uncovered earlier so that I didn't have to go through these two life-threatening events. So I started to mine medicine's history for some answers to some of the questions that my doctors just couldn't explain. And I was a historian at the time working on art history. So I started sort of Googling my way around medicine's history to try and figure out some things about lupus that still were so elusive to me. And I kept discovering these case studies of unwell women with lupus in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, in the 1950s. And they all had these really important things in common. They all described women who had mysterious symptoms, pain, complications in pregnancy, heart difficulties, but were left undiagnosed, sometimes for years, sometimes for 10 years, before being diagnosed with a disease called lupus. And I thought, okay, medical his medicine has progressed exponentially as a science across a century. But yet, why is it that the diagnostic process that women have to go through and hasn't progressed at all? Like, why do we know how to medicate a disease but not how to treat the sufferers of that disease? So that's where Unwell Women began, from this urgency that I felt to not only uncover this kind of kernel this kind of knotty truth about my own disease and the possible gender biases surrounding it, but also to trace where that bias had come from. And over time, the more interested I became in these medical case studies, the more my attention expanded to other diseases that are often discussed in relation to things like lupus. So conditions like endometriosis, conditions like multiple sclerosis, uterine fibroids, polycystic ovarian syndrome, these diseases and conditions that so often go misdiagnosed or where diagnosis is delayed for many years and where there seems to be very little research and understanding. And crucially, the diseases that women seem to have to convince their doctors of the validity. So women have to convince their doctors of the pain. And these diseases all had something in common. So unwell women, that's where it began from this anger and also fascination with why this was still happening in the 21st century. Yeah. Okay. So 
it sounds like you uncovered quite a bit. And I mean, from the book, I can see how far back you you went in time to to see not necessarily where it started, but where we have it recorded that it started and, and different ways that women have been viewed medically and emotionally throughout history. What was so disheartening to me when and, and true when reading this is it, there's just so many kernels of truth from that still linger. Rather, I shouldn't say kernels of truth, but kernels of misinformation and misunderstanding about women and women's health and mental health that have persisted years, year after year, since since recorded history, it looks like. So I, I can't even imagine how long it took you to figure all of this out and find all of this information because there, there is, this is so dense with all of these examples, which all of it, I'm sure you didn't even put everything you found in this book. There must be so much there. So first of all, thank you for taking your, your pain and, and the misunderstanding from, from doctors and turning it into this resource for, for the rest of us, because I, I think it is a resource. If you can then maybe start back in time to, I think the book starts in ancient Greece, essentially from the beginning of, of our kind of current medical roots, I should say. Anyhow, if you can start there and, and tell us what you found back in ancient Greece. Of course. So it's really important to me to begin at the beginning. And mm -hmm. of course, you're completely right. Women's bodies, minds, emotions, physical symptoms far exceed the beginnings of what we call modern medical thinking. But it was important for me to begin in ancient Greece, where we have the formation of medical practice and thought that has been the model that we've more or less followed for the last more than 2000 years. And it was really the point in history in which women's bodies and minds became medicalized for the first time in the sense that we understand that today. It was the first time where women's bodies were being scrutinized and women's minds also being scrutinized by male through this kind of male medical lens. And of course, ancient Greece was a deeply, deeply patriarchal society. So the understanding of women's bodies and minds that emerged at the beginnings of medical history was tainted by this extremely sexist, narrow vision of what women were for, why women existed, what the purpose of women was. And this idea that women existed primarily as reproductive vessels, as carriages for future generations of children, principally of male heirs, really did cloud how women's bodies and minds were viewed in this medical thinking. So the first medical authors that I talk about in Unwell Women are the Hippocratic authors. Now, we know Hippocrates, we know the name Hippocrates because our health professionals all swear a version of the Hippocratic Oath, which is, of course, first do no harm, which is kind of an ironic statement considering when we think about how that oath has uh, not necessarily been applied to us all. Right. Anyway, so the Hippocratic authors were a collection of, of medical writers working around the fourth and fifth century in the BCE, in the tradition of 
physician named Hippocrates, and they wrote treaties and tracts about all aspects of human health and illness, including several volumes about women's health and about human generation and a little tiny bit about child, the care of the newborn, but not so much. So they were the first authors to really map and define women's illnesses of the body and of the mind. Now, a deeply patriarchal society like ancient Greece that sees women as foremost reproductive vessels considered women's bodies very much through the prism of their reproductive function and their reproductive organs. So the uterus was the principal organ of medical thinking right at its very beginnings in terms of women's health. And the ancient Greeks believed that because women were destined and put on the earth effectively to procreate and to bear and raise children, that all of their health issues circulated around their uteruses and around where they were in relationship to conceiving, carrying or mothering children. So the uterus became this really sort of contested site of problems and difficulties. And in many ways, the ancient Greeks saw the uterus as, as an organ that was controlling women's bodies. Because if women wanted above all else to procreate, then it was almost as if their bodies were being sort of driven to by this organ that wanted to perform that function above any other function. So the ancient Greeks put an awful lot of responsibility and duty into the uterus, and they even endowed it with a certain capacity to move and act on its own behalf. The ancient Greeks actually believed that the womb could wander. The, the uterus, if it wasn't performing its duty of conceiving or being weighed down with a child, that the uterus would become mischievous and start to creep towards other organs in the body, start to creep towards the liver or the heart or the diaphragm. And as it crept, start causing all manner of symptoms from pain to convulsions, to fevers, to chills, to stomach issues. So from the very beginning, women's health was intimately tied into their reproductive capacity and to the behaviour, if you will, of the principal reproductive organ, the uterus. No pressure, uterus. <laughs> right. I mean, there's so this episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready to eat Factor meals. And ready to eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high protein and calorie smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 
to get 50% off. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mine listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. From what I understand uh, from your book, there there weren't at the time, there weren't people really doing a, a lot of looking into the body to see where the actual structures were. There wasn't the sort of autopsies and and medical examinations that we have had since then. So this was just an idea. Yeah. A thought. It was was a thought and idea because human dissection was not prohibited in the ancient Greek world. So although physicians later did perform dissections on animals and then began to learn that perhaps a uterus could not wander, that it may be tethered by sinews and Mm -hmm. ligaments into the body. The ancient Greeks exactly didn't, weren't able to look inside the body. Mm -hmm. So they were figuring out what was happening inside the body by observing only the external symptoms, the things they could see and hear and touch. So a lot of the way that they characterized the uterus in a medical sense was actually in a, in a sort of social way. So it's like putting two and two together and making five. Women, women are reproductive. Women need to reproduce. That's why they exist. So therefore, if they're sick, it must be something to do with that something to do with where they stand in relation to their reproductive cycle, reproductive life cycle. And they would observe symptoms. For example, there was a disease that the Hippocratic physicians described called the suffocation of the uterus, which was where they believed that the uterus was sort of impacting the diaphragm and women would feel as if they were choking. Now, we could kind of go back and diagnose all sorts of possibilities for a sense of fullness and choking in the throat but for them when they didn't have this understanding of how the body worked in a more intricate sense they made this assumption well the womb is rising up and the main medicine for a mischievous womb is marital sex and pregnancy so it was both a very convenient way for these medical men to assert a certain amount of social control over women because that is the only way they had to understand how women's bodies would work. And it was also the only a limitation of knowledge as well. So, so the, the two things collide, the lack of knowledge or the ignorance and the desire to control women kind of come together to create this bevy of, of strange uterine fictions that I really think have haunted women's health ever since. 
Oh, right. So both the misunderstanding of what's happening in the body and the quote unquote cure, or you talk a lot about this dance throughout history of how understanding has changed from sort of one medical generation to the next. And certainly if it's more in the hands of the like patriarchal societies, which is mostly, and, and throughout the book, you're speaking mostly from kind of a European and uh, North American perspectives, this, the the history that you're drawing upon. So f- for sure, I mean, we can say that these are patriarchal societies. The What they have done over time, certainly things have changed over time, but as you said, that this thread still runs through, that making assumptions about what's going on in the body and then making an assumption about how to to best support or help. And, and even I can maybe say that over time, I think the intentions have been better and more woman-centered, but still pretty misguided. Is that fair? Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. I think that's completely fair. I think, of course, with each generation of medical thought in the Western medical model that I, I talk about the history of in this book, with each generation of medical thought comes an expanded understanding of the human body and its illnesses. But something that I think remains fairly consistent when it comes to women's health and the understanding of women's bodies across that history is that because medicine has been so male dominated across its history, these mythologies and fictions about what women's bodies are for and how women's bodies work and also how women's minds behave in relation to their bodies. I think these myths and fictions have really stuck because they're not just about medical thought about the body, they're also about societal ideas about women and women's roles and women's place. And so those things have become very baked in to medical thinking, even as it's progressed as a science, even as it's progressed into the biomedical model that we understand it to be today, the evidence-based model. There is still, it's almost as if we're haunted still by fictions like the wandering womb or, you know, diagnostic fantasies like hysteria. We're still, although these terms aren't in play, we hope, in our doctor's (laughs) offices, the shape or form or shadow of those ideas do linger because for so long medicine has been a patriarchal practice that has always reflected something larger about the social order. And we're talking about centuries of medical thinking being laid down before women were even permitted to have licenses to practice medicine, which didn't happen until the late 19th century. Now, of course, women have always practiced medicine and always cared for their bodies and other bodies. But in terms of the thinking and discourse that has become laid down as medicine with a big capital M, (laughs) women have really been exempted from that formal history until the end of the 19th century. So there was an awful lot to unpack and unpick by the time women were formally allowed to become physicians. So it feels a a lot like so much unchecked power or unchecked patriarchal dominance baked into medicine. 
And we we haven't had that long to undo it, really. I mean, just over a century to unravel that and redress it and, and correct this, these long held beliefs or misbeliefs, I should say, about women's bodies and minds. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you touched on a couple of things that I want to come back to there. This idea of hysteria and women being hysteric. I unfortunately do hear that word still. I mean, as it relates to not just sort of putting a woman down, but the, it, it's the underpinnings of it, the feeling and meaning of it are still held, I believe, in many ways, but maybe a little more a subtle now. But there are ways in which women now here, oh, she's just acting crazy. She's just whatever. It's it's some other form or word that is horrible and, and absolutely dismissive. You talk about the word hysteric, and there's there's a bit in here that I just want to read in the in the early um, chapters. You say here, by the later decades of the 1800s, hysteria was synonymous with deranged feminine behaviors and emotions. It's no surprise that emerging mind and nerve doctors, alienists and neurologists were eager to pin down that amorphous object and define it on their own terms. So that is important. I mean, this to me doesn't feel like that long ago, certainly that we were able to take some control of this misunderstanding of us as beings. But if you can speak to some of that history and how it is of hysteria, the word where it came from and 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 how it's showing up now of course so hysteria as a diagnostic term emerged in around the 17th century in english medical writings but the word hysteria actually derives from the ancient greek word for for uterus or womb which is hystera and when the physicians who were interested in the influence of women's uteruses on their minds and vice versa began thinking about this in the 17th century it was no coincidence that they started to use this word hysteria that had these roots in an ancient greek word that was used for an organ that was always seen as being very volatile right and having that sort of wandering capacity so hysteria didn't begin with ancient Greece necessarily as a medical diagnosis, but that's where the seeds were sown. This idea that a woman's uterus has a very profound influence on her body and mind, and that disorders and distempers of the uterus could inflict such a vast array of mental and physical symptoms. So hysteria emerges around the 17th century as a way of explaining some of the more inexplicable symptoms that women patients were suffering, that their doctors were observing. And one of the first treaties on hysteria actually emerged as a counter argument to the physical and emotional manifestations of apparent witchcraft and demonic possession. So across the 15th, between the 15th and 17th centuries across Europe, about 45,000 people were penalised and accused and executed for apparent crimes of witchcraft. About 80% of those are estimated to have been women. As the witchcraft craze, if it, as it has become known, began to wane in Europe, 
certain more humane-minded doctors started to think about what really was happening. Mm -hmm. Evidently, women were not actually casting spells or communing with the devil. So what was it, these physicians wondered, that was making them behave as if they were? And one particular physician called Edward Jordan decided that it was because the uterus was unwell and it was inflicting such bizarre symptoms in women that they would appear as if under the dominion of spells. And so when he categorized hysteria, he really introduced this idea that hysteria was any symptom you couldn't explain that was happening in a woman could be linked back to her uterus and some disorder of it. Because he saw the principal sufferers of hysteria as being younger women and older women. So women around the age of first menstruation, women around the age of, of menopause in our modern understanding. So he categorized that something was happening in the uterus that was dr effectively driving women crazy driving both their bodies and minds awry. So from this idea, hysteria started its life as a very convenient diagnosis for an array of mental and physical symptoms that doctors didn't necessarily understand and couldn't necessarily put a cause to. And I often say when I'm asked about hysteria that hysteria is a made up idea that was imposed upon women and it served, again, as a way of controlling women. It served as a mechanism of social control, but it also served to assuage doctors' ignorance about what was really happening in a woman's body and mind. There's not really one consistent definition of hysteria. Some physicians listed anything and everything you could imagine, from emotionality, to nervous disorders, to issues with menstruation, to pain. Others had a more narrow definition, but it was what it always had in common was this tendency to associate very closely what was going on in a woman's mind, so her personality, her behavior, her emotions, with what was going on in her reproductive system. It was a way of creating this link, this sort of accusatory link between these two organs in a woman's body. So it became, it really caught on. It became a very popular diagnosis for many women's illnesses. And it really gained prevalence in the 19th century with this image of the hysterical woman who either her symptoms and her pain were being created by her mind or either her mind was creating her symptoms and pain. So there, there was always a way to sort of bring back this idea of hysteria to the woman she was right. creating herself she wasn't behaving so her body was acting up or she wasn't treating her body properly and doing what she should with it so her mind was overreacting so it was a very accusatory very victim blaming form of diagnosis but it was also dangerously broad so it masked an awful lot of genuine illness and suffering beneath it. Right, for sure. No, nothing else is, is being addressed uh, and nothing else is being treated because it, it doesn't even exist, essentially, in their mind. What I find really 
uh, infuriating about all of this through, throughout the book, things that you're describing, is that uh, from what I can tell, at no time oh, was there an understanding that the societal pressures that women were facing were potentially part of why they were feeling the way that they were. And that is and any form of like oppression, not having any rights, feeling like they have no say in their life. And I, I think in the, the most extreme versions of this are what you're d- describe about what happens, what happened reproductively and and more than that, when it comes to slavery and medical experimentation, just like a total disregard for the humanity of of the women and really not any understanding that what someone is going through has any bearing on how they might be feeling. Totally. We see time and again this this pathology of hysteria being applied to women whose social circumstances or personal circumstances were difficult, tragic, extremely hard, or they'd been through something extremely challenging and difficult. I always remember this one case study of a young woman who was taken to a hospital, a psychiatric facility, a lunatic asylum, as it was known then, in the sort of mid-19th century and diagnosed with hysteric affection. And her case study described how her father had died, how she'd lost her brother in an illness, how she was working all day in a mill and having to come home and look after the young ones and her mother was sick. And it described this excruciatingly difficult life for a young woman, I think she was about 17. And rather than addressing those circumstances of her life humanely and treating her as a person, all the case study fixated on was her tendency to have uncontrollable fits of laughing and crying and her sort of the way that she was apparently overly flirtatious with the the nurses or this kind of that's all that it focused on the details of her life were a sidebar almost and nobody ever reflected in that case study on just the hardship on how difficult her life was and how she had no outlet she had no space to be herself, no way to express what it meant to her to be a young woman at that time in history. And this happens again and again, a complete denial, as you say, of the humanity of women and the just simply how difficult it was to be a woman throughout so much of history, especially in relationship to choice around what you do with your body. Yeah, absolutely. I, this, I think if we sort of titrate it down to what's happening right now, it's it still happens. This is one of those threads of how history remains in this way that you should essentially be able to do everything and be everything and not complain about it. There should be no reason for you to be upset uh, for anything. I'm talking about this is just day-to-day living, let alone mental health concerns or or physical health, like real illnesses somehow we should as women just suck it up and go on about our day and our life and and not complain it still happens all the time yeah yeah so touching back again a little bit you you do touch on some of the really i mean i have so many words for it but for now i'll just say inhumane and backwards uh ways that how how 
medical, I don't even know the word, the word that I want to use, medical leverage, I guess, was used against women in slavery and black women in particular to further cut them off from having any, any even sense of feeling in their body that somehow because of the ray, their race, that they didn't feel anything. And so medical experimentations were happening and with, without any form of, I guess, pain management, for lack of a better word. Can you speak a little bit to that, that history and how medical understanding was used to the, to the benefit of the so-called physicians? Of course. So in the early mid-19th century in Alabama, a physician named James Marion Sims practiced. And he was a physician who treated people who worked on plantations in a town called Montgomery. And he was a unique physician in that his principal clients were plantation owners, were slave owners. And he treated enslaved people when they were injured or unwell. He was one day sent to look at a woman, a young woman named Anaka, who had been, who had given birth and had suffered an injury called a vesicovaginal fistula, which at the time was deemed incurable. And the slave owner, Anaka was unable to work. So the slave owner, and it's so awful to say, but had no use for her and effectively handed her over as a medical specimen to Sims, who was a gynecologist who had improvised a gynecological hospital in his backyard of his home. Now, Sims always professed to have absolutely no interest in reproductive medicine or gynecological medicine, and even admitted to being disgusted by this aspect of female anatomy. So you can imagine the complete lack of respect he gave to an enslaved woman. But Sims decided that he would try to cure the vesicovaginal fistula. And he did this by experimenting on Anaka, whom he purchased from her owner. And then he began to experiment on multiple other young enslaved women to, to develop gynecological procedures, many of which are in practice today. Now, Sims gained a reputation as being the father of American gynecology, but the foundations of his reputation were the abuse, exploitation, dehumanization of enslaved women who were just treated like objects, who were subjected to multiple experimental surgeries, always without anaesthetic. And his autobiography, which was actually published after his death, is one of the most difficult things I've ever read. Not only for its description of the utterly harrowing procedures that were performed on these women, but for the vainglorious, almost frivolous way that he revels in his own glory as a saviour of women, while completely denying the what he put these women through by treating them as nothing more than objects. And it really is an evil work to read. And what is also so completely harrowing is that 
I think it's only recently that the names of these women have been restored to history, thanks to some incredible research by scholars in really returning the truth of Sims experiments to our history. And there was a monument of Sims, a statue of Sims that stood at the Harlem end of Central Park for many years and was eventually torn down or removed in 2018 after years of community protests. And the names of some of the women that Sims experimented on were then sort of replaced and held up by protesters to really draw attention to this harrowing um, part of gynecological medicinal history. So we really, we come to this awful episode in medicine's history through various factors, one being that it was not believed at the time that Sims was performing these experiments that enslaved people felt pain in the same way that non-enslaved people did. There were attitudes transplanted from racist anthropology that one of the reasons that that people could be enslaved was because they were less than human and more akin to animals. And so therefore there was a sort of justification that Sims held in terms of the attitude that the women he was experimenting with, he didn't think about their pain because he didn't believe they could feel any. And it's an incredibly, incredibly disturbing moment to talk about, but I think it's exceptionally important to talk about the roots of gynecological violence and reproductive abuse that happen to so many women today still yes. across our world. Yes. And when we begin to unravel, when we look at episodes like of our history, like James Marion Sims, we understand that the kinds of thinking, the kinds of attitudes that have allowed this to happen. And then we can hopefully move towards a space where this doesn't happen. But sadly, it's very, it's a very real factor of women's experience in many parts of the world. Yeah, most definitely. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it. And their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high quality traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable, and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. 
Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using one skin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. And this is precisely one of the reasons why I think this book on well women that you wrote is so vitally important is because we the, the feelings that we are left with as women is that our, our pain doesn't matter. Our truth and reality, what we experience doesn't matter. And in the perinatal mental health world and reproductive justice, specifically, we're talking about Black women and women of color. These kind of beliefs permeate still from in medical communities and specifically in the, in the birth rooms, hospitals in particular. Unfortunately, I mean, there are a lot of assumptions that still that Black women don't feel pain in the same way, or that if they are describing pain, they're just sort of, uh, what have I heard? They're um, being dramatic, or they're just attention-seeking, or any number of incredibly dismissive um, terms. And we are still dealing with this. And in terms of mental health in particular, I think it gets, how can I say, because there's not, let's say, like a body organ necessarily to point to. It's We're talking about an experience that you can't necessarily put a finger on. Physicians, mental health practitioners, even still, how do I want to say, when it comes to maternal mental health, perinatal mental health, things like pregnancy, anxiety, or postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, even, it's it's still so misunderstood. And in part, it's because of all of what you've talked about in this book is that no attention or not enough attention has been given, number one. And number two, what attention has been given has been very incomplete, misguided. So here we are still left. And I, as I was, I'm I'm pretty well versed in the world that I work in in my career. But still, as I was reading your book, I, I was like, oh my gosh, that's why oh my gosh, that's why. And I kept making all of these connections to why I and many other women that I I support feel the way that they do. There's deep, deep roots here in the history. And it's your your work in uncovering and putting together the history rather in this way, I think is so empowering. It gives us a chance to, to say like, oh, right, that is why I feel the way that I feel. And and I believe gives us more power to do do something differently. Thank you for saying that because it was that was so much of my motivation to write the book in the first place was to understand that what had happened to me in terms of my missed and delayed diagnosis with lupus and then the complications of my pregnancy were not my fault, but and actually the fault of this embedded long thorny vexed history 
that has gone so unchallenged for so much of our history. And I wanted to expand that out because it's not just about me. I never wanted just, I am one of hundreds, thousands, millions of women across the world for whom this is a reality, whether that happens during pregnancy, postpartum, whether that happens in everyday health from gynae checkups to menstrual health to menopause care, whether that happens because you have a chronic illness or even an injury, something emergent. There is, we've all have this story and I feel like to understand how deep rooted that history is, then we can address it. Then we can understand that it isn't our fault. It's not our fault. We're trying to be careful within a system that's too often rigged against us because we are women. Yes, absolutely. And and to that point, I just want to go back a little bit and touch on, you you talk a little bit about the the writing, the yellow wallpaper about a woman who is experiencing severe mental symptoms and who was disregarded by medicine, but also by her own husband. Correct? Am I? Yes, I'm correct. (laughs) I thought it was misremembering for a second. Can, can you speak a little bit to what you've seen just about the mental health throughout history and for women in particular? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the mental, mental and physical health in women has always been deeply intertwined across medicine's history and has often been interpreted as this channel existing, if you will, between uterus and brain, uterus and mind. And so often when descriptors of things like hysteria are made, there are a lot of judgments are brought in about women's emotions, women's robustness, women's ability to adapt to their social circumstances comes up an awful lot. Of course, as you said earlier, for so much of our history, women's circumstances have been very limited women's circumstances have been very controlled and curtailed, especially in terms of what they can do with their bodies, how they can behave and feel sexually, how they can express themselves creatively. These things have all been very curtailed. And especially across the 19th century, women's symptoms of women's mental health were often viewed as their own failings. So if a woman was feeling to use an old medical word, melancholy or nervous, rather than thinking, okay, this is because she is perhaps suffering through postnatal depression or perhaps through another form of mental ill health. This, the, these mental ill health symptoms would be attributed to her failure to just adapt and accept her role as a mother, a wife, a child bearer. And I think that this resonates now very much. I think Mm -hmm. that we misunderstand or so much of our culture misunderstands mental health in women, especially related to pregnancy and post-pregnancy as this failure to just get on with it or just accept it or just do what you've got to do. And so often, of course, in history, this, this hysteric women idea was sometimes viewed by physicians as a way, of women, way for women to escape their domestic circumstances and go lie down and have attention brought to them and not have to carry out their expected duties as wives and mothers, which again, I think is something that is still 
resonates. So rather than a full and humane understanding of how these bodily experiences affect our minds and how the pressures of these socially ordained roles affect women, there's always this victim blaming. It always returns back to some failing within a woman's ability or acceptance of this maternal role. And that is definitely something that we see from the beginnings of medical history to the present. Right. And so so what I see, the, the manifestations of all of this leftover stuff of, from history is that it it's become so internalized for women in our hearts and in our minds that oh, we carry around incredible guilt and shame for not living up to this unrealistic standard. And we carry around with us all of the myths of what motherhood is supposed to be. So we have any number of things to feel guilty about and feel ashamed about because we're not living up to to these ideals. And in my mind, there was I didn't fully understand how far back in history this went. In some ways, I was thinking, okay, well, yes, modern motherhood, there's there's a lot of pressure with social media. And this is, these are things that we, we didn't have before. And that does bring a whole lot with it. I think added pressure, added ways to, to feel guilty and, and compare yourself. But the reality is, is that this is not new. It's just in a different form and maybe a little more in our face in a new way, but it's been happening for forever. It really has. I mean, since the beginnings of modern medicine, when women's reproductive bodies began to be controlled in a medical way, medical ideas and social ideas about how women should feel as mothers, what women should do with their bodies as they're becoming mothers, how women should forget themselves in order to adopt their maternal roles, have been enforced again and again and again by these sort of dominant ideas about these kind of ideal mother, what this ideal mother means within society. And of course, the payout of that, the expenditure of that for us is that we do have this guilt and shame, this long embedded, very ingrained sense of guilt and shame if we do not feel the way we're told to feel. So I think so much pain has been buried under this ideal for so many centuries and not discussed. And when it is discussed, it's frightening because the opposite of the ideal mother is this monstrous pathological mother who doesn't love her children or something. There's no, it's very dangerous and scary for women to admit to feeling like it's not the most natural thing in the world for her to do because this is what we have funneled women into having to do. And we've also always throughout history equated maternity, maternal love, maternal well-being with health, with mental and physical health. So that continues to haunt us as well. The idea of a, the ancient Greek idea that any ailment could be cured effectively with being pregnant and being a mother and that any diversion from that was a sort of aberration everything still comes back to women, to the way women have to police their bodies and minds in order to perform this service, this maternal service to society. Yeah. As you were talking about it, you made me remember uh, several other iterations of this that I don't want to use up all of your (laughs) time today, but 
what I want to, I guess, point listeners to pay attention to who are reading this book is there are a lot of ways that medicine and religion have also been intertwined in this to the benefit of, I don't know, religion and patriarchy. I'm, I'm not, don't know how to describe that. But there, there are so many ways that that you describe in this book about how we've been controlled. I guess that's that's how I'd like to say it. Yeah. And it's it's so disheartening, but so eye opening at the same time. Yeah. I, so I, for now, I will just point listeners to to read the whole book <laughs> uh, because it's absolutely worthwhile and so liberating. Really, you've given us a gift. I I believe. This for me, anyways, it is. Yeah. As we wrap up, I'm hoping and wondering if you can leave us with some of your hopes uh, for people who read this book, takeaways for them, and what you're hoping that they can do with that. My main hope for all readers of this book, and in fact, all women who are having to negotiate the medical and health systems for whatever reason, is to remember that your body is your own, no matter how doctors, physicians, healthcare providers, or other people might make you feel, your body is always your own and you're always the best narrator of what is happening within your body and within your mind. Even if the system sort of takes that sense of agency and autonomy away from you, it's always your body. I think that over the last 50, 40, 30, 20 years, women have really made incredible strides within this space to push back against the medical control over our lives and to assert the importance of our lived experience, of our stories, of our knowledge, of our understanding of our bodies and minds. And I think conversations like this, podcasts like yours, are crucial because the way that we push back against this, the way that we unravel this history is by countering the silencing of our bodies with guilt, with shame. This patriarchal medical model has done too effectively over the centuries. We're now in a space where we can share, we can speak, we can come together in community across the world and talk about what it means to live in our bodies, talk about what it means to experience our minds, our lives, our feelings. And that is how we move forward. I really believe that's that is how we counter this. And that's how we move towards creating a more equitable health culture for all of us. Absolutely. All right. That's my battle cry. I I can't say enough good things and I can't recommend this book enough. So I will keep recommending it. It's, it's truly has been a gift and, and an honor to talk with you and for you to share this with us. And I'm just hoping that everyone goes and, and reads this and gets that, that message that you're, you're sending out. I thank you so much for, for your book and your time. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I've loved our conversation. Just this little bit of an interview, we've touched on so many things that I hope you can really resonate with and for sure take away that message of hope from Eleanor. If you'd like to connect with her, you can find her on Twitter and IG at Eleanor Cleghorn. And please do, please, 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 I beg you, get this book on Well Women. As I said, I listened to it in audio form and it was really nice to be able to walk around the house and do other things while listening I believe for me that having the hardcover has helped really to be able to go back and digest and think about some of these important points. If you know anybody who could benefit from the information in this episode, please, please, please share it. 
as well as share this resource of the book, Unwell Women. I think the more of us that have access to this information, the more empowered we can feel moving forward. Thank you again to Eleanor. And I thank you all for joining us in this episode. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.